Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Wonderful wine lovers of the world. Welcome back to another episode. I've so been looking forward to releasing this one as I've recorded it back in November. And oh my gosh, you are going to learn so much. I'm chatting with Christo LaRiche, winemaker at, wait for it, LaRiche. It's a Stella Bosch winery making absolutely cracking Cabernet Sauvignons. Christo is not only a knowledgeable and talented winemaker, but he's really entertaining and has an innate ability to tell captivating stories. So you are in for a treat. We are talking about how he got into winemaking and what top winery he grew up on. There'll be loads of name dropping of incredible South African wineries and winemakers. So do go to my show notes where you can download the transcripts. Christo's worked at some of the most iconic wineries in the world. And when I say iconic, I mean iconic. And as his travels have taken him to Bordeaux and Napa Valley, we're going to be talking about how Cabernet Sauvignon differs across these two regions and Stellenbosch, their styles and their different personalities. And of course, no winemaking episode is complete without hearing Christo explain how he gets the most out of Cabernet Sauvignon and his winemaking techniques. So before we go to that chat, let's just touch base on Cabernet Sauvignon, the grape variety, quickly. Firstly, it's actually a crossing between Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, hence the name. And it's now one of the most internationally planted varieties. If you're doing a blind tasting, you would want to look out for aromas and flavours such as black fruits, cassis and cedar. It can often have a real mintiness, eucalyptus note, maybe some tomato leaf or that green bell pepper, so something a little herbaceous. And also graphite, pencil shavings, tobacco. It has a deep colour when you're looking at it in a glass. It's full-bodied with medium to medium plus acidity. Typically high alcohol, so 13.5% and upwards. And medium plus tannings. Right, well, now we are all on the same page with Cab Sav. I'm happy to share with you my chat with Christo. Christo, I am very, very keen to absorb all of your knowledge about Cabernet Sauvignon and Stellenbosch. So are you ready to give me all of your life stories? Uh, I don't think we've got enough time for that, to be honest. (laughs) Oh, well, that makes me feel positive that you have enough stories. So great. Let's see how we can fill, fill this next hour up, right? Yeah, definitely. There's, there's a lot. It's so much is exciting. There's so much down here, so we can de- definitely. There's a. I hopefully I've got a little bit of a couple of good stories on the table. We can. Let's see what we comes can do out. a. Yeah, exactly. We can do a, a few small digs, can't we? So let's start with you. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about your story getting into wine. Your father. So, yeah, go for it. Oh, okay. Well, um, I think let's kick off. <laughs> let's kick off with my dad because he was okay. here before I was here. Um, I, yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah, so he <laughs> he uh, actually went to Stellenbosch and he was planning on doing medicine. Um, oh, okay. In, that was in 1969. Mm -hmm. um, and then he didn't get into the medical, into the medicine in Stellenbosch. Um, so he was like, well, okay, what shall I do now? So he did a BSc. Um, a Bachelor of Science, and mm -hmm. then in the second year, they still didn't want him for medicine. So <laughs> my, da my dad was big into diving and a whole bunch of other stuff that day. I oh, don't I know like how much of a, of a studious student he was. Um, <laughs> but in the end, he actually then decided to, to go into winemaking, and they, at mm -hmm. that stage were only eight people in their class. Um, my ah. class graduated with 80 um, winemakers. It changed a little so bit. It changed a little bit in the industries. Um, and yeah, so then from there, he yeah, qualified as a winemaker, did work for two years at our national research facility where he made all the experimental wines. Okay. And then at that stage, he was a big, uh, big diver. So, and he knew how to work with an aqualung. So he mm -hmm. actually, at Rustenburg, he had a friend who was, who was working at Rustenburg and um, they had an irrigation dam and this irrigation dam kept getting clogged up with frogs. So at the bottom of the <laughs> pipe where the, where the irrigation pipe comes out, there's a uh -huh. sieve. And the frogs used to slime this up and clog up the sieve every time they started pumping. Ridiculous so, frogs. Yeah, exactly. So after, <laughs> after actually a, a long chat, the guy found out my dad is an aqualung. My dad was invited over to come and clear the flog, frogs from the dam's outlet. Mm -hmm. um, he dived down, ended up meeting, um, meeting the, the owner, uh, Peter Barlow, at that stage still. Yeah. Um, and they offered him the assistant winemaker job um, as he came out of the dam. Oh, that's amazing. Frog diving, winemaking. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So that, that was a great way for him to walk into probably one of the most prestigious South African wineries. Um, I mean, Rustenburg is really a... Absolutely. Uh, it's one of the oldest and most beautiful farms in, in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he walked in, became assistant winemaker. I think he took over full winemaking duties in 79. Yeah. Um, and then from there, yeah, he was there for 20 years and was one of the founders of the Cape Winemakers Guild in 81. Um, and yeah, built his career off, off, off that farm. And then you came along. Yeah, so the two, two of my dad's best vintages he ever made was 82 and 84. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the birth year of my sister Yvonne and then in 82 and then mine in 84. So, oh, that's quite um, So was that anything to do with the climate and the actual vintage? Or do you think that he was just feeling rather inspired by having I've, I've got no idea because we would probably have been made, considering our birth, we would probably have been made in 81 and 83, which were terrible vintages. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting debate as to, as to where that came along. But yeah, I uh -huh. do think my dad felt inspired with his with okay. his um, with his first kids on the way and during okay. the harvest time and mm -hmm. a little bit of extra hard work and the weather played along luckily yes so i love that so you came along and obviously a very very good harvest and you were obviously growing up around rustenburg right around the vines how was that growing up with vines and wineries all around you oh that's absolutely amazing i don't think any little boy can can hope or dream of a better of a better place or kind of um, way to be raised. So mm -hmm. we, we used to live in the manor house right next to the winery. Um, <gasps> Did you? Okay. And now it's I'm this so beautiful, jealous. beautiful old Cape Dutch building. Um, actually, after we moved out, they, nobody else lived in the house because they said it had ghosts because the old yellow really? floor, floorboards would creak and crack um, while you sleep at night. But Ooh. I mean, it was, it was just this beautiful, beautiful manor house in the typical uh -huh. Cape Dutch homestead style. 
And then we used to run around barefoot everywhere where they still had Jersey cows in the farm. So we used to play, play with the Jersey cows, um, chase the stable cats around, trying to catch them <laughs> to no avail. Um, and then just, I also clearly remember going up into the vineyards with my dad on the back of the motorbike. Um, and him just like, just going through the vineyards or being involved during, during harvest. Uh, we always used to do open top fermenters. So be involved in the punch downs, oh, um, watch the yes. process happening. Um, climb on the roof and get a massive hiding at that stage. Still get hidings, <laughs> I deserved it. Um, so yeah, go scurrying over the the roof of the cellar, etc. So no, it was a it was an amazing space to 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 be raised. Um, oh. Amazing group of people as well. So just the whole team at that stage. There was sort of sheep flock, um, mm -hmm. and Derek, the Motleys are still good family friends of ours. We uh, we travel and visit them on a yearly basis for the winemaker surfing competition up in uh, in Mossel Bay area. The winemakers. Um, the winemakers surfing competition yeah so it's That's called awesome. the Wittners it's called the Wittners surf classic um, okay we I mean if you just take the who's who of South Africa so there's Ibn Saadi of um, course Jer Absolute Jeremy legend. Jeremy Walker Miles mm -hmm. Mossop Duncan Savage um the Newton Johnson brothers okay. Sebastian Beaumont um Peter Walser from Blank Bottle okay. um and uh Kali from Porcelainburg, mm -hmm. um, Alex Steri from Kiermont. Um, and so we can keep going as to the guys that are actually taking part. So we're okay. about 60, 50 to 60 winemakers and winemakers, marketers, viticulturists that head up there every year. Yeah. And we have one massive surfing competition. And it's the biggest fun and the most fun event of the year where it's not this stiff... Um, black tie event everybody uh -huh. hangs out there in their shorts flip-flops t-shirts and we just have an absolute blast for the day well most importantly who's the best surfer who wins oh that's that that differs so so one ah, guy okay. stands out that's Gunter schultz um from the schultz family now you'll know the schultzes through carl schultz from hartenberg okay. rudy schultz the winemaker at the mm -hmm. and then Gunter is the naughty youngest brother. So he was at Kleinhut, <laughs> he was at Kleinhut for a very long time under the label okay. Tamburschkloof. Uh, yeah. He also made Dell Air wines through the early 2000s. And he's now at Belaya Bay, which is a kind of a unique little project out oh. towards, um, actually very close to Stilbe. He moved out there for the surf. But yeah, wow, he was okay. a, he's an ex-South African kind of surfer. He's extremely good. So he takes it every year. Uh -huh. But... The rest all mulls around who's who's surfing on the day um, and various other reasons why people win and don't win, which I'm not going to go into on public um, discussions. <laughs> Aww, but um, no yeah, it's 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 great fun. It's really one of the one of the highlights of the surf, of the of the winemaking calendar for us. Oh, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not just waking wine, but having a little bit of fun. And also, I love the camaraderie. I imagine that it brings for all of you guys together, right? Oh, it's absolutely amazing. It's it's really become like a family of of guys who who get together. We spend the weekend up there together, and mm. no, it's it's great fun, and it's much better than golfing. So, yeah, but um, it's, Christo, it's what about fun. the women? What about the girls? Oh, we've, what, so are you'll, they allowed you'll in? Know, of course. So you'll know Tazan <laughs> Bionite um, okay. from Tazan Signature Wines. Um, okay. She she wins the women's category every single year. Okay, good. And then Nadia Bionite from Waterkloof. She also okay, takes no, part. Mm -hmm. okay, um, okay. So you should know the Waterkloof Wines. Um, they do the False Bay range as well, which is also coming in through Butino into the UK. Oh, okay. um, and then Lucinda Haynes, who actually does a brand called Illimus. Uh, which is her own private label, but she's actually a viticultural consultant 
uh, in the area as well. So those are the three girls who, who take part every year. Um, but those are unfortunately <laughs> the only girls taking part. Well, you know, as long as there are girls involved, you know, if the rest are too busy doing other things, then that's their own problem, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I've been surfing the juniors now for 14 years. So at, at the at the young age of 37, I'm still classified as a junior in the event. So oh, I, I don't know when I'll junior. upgrade to seniors. Uh, well, but in any case, take it, be a junior. It seems there's no young winemaker surfing. <laughs> So tell me, so surfing aside, when did you decide, right, I'm going to make my own wine or I want to be a winemaker? That was probably in and around the age of about between 16 and 18. Okay. Probably. I, th- yeah. I mean, initially I wanted to be a game ranger. Um, okay. And yeah, then yeah. I realized that there's there's no money in this um, and it's just a totally impractical career. It's it's absolutely yeah. amazing, but it's just an impractical career. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I toyed with the idea of landscapes architecture, which I'm very glad I didn't go into. And then I, I just realized that, look, I love, I love science, I love biology, um, I love business. And at that stage, I mean, obviously we had our family business that I needed to take over. So mm-hmm. as, as you do as much business, marketing, winemaking, viticulture, the entire process. And I think just going through the, my options at that stage, I, I was really intrigued by the whole wine industry and just the, the depth and width of, of skill sets that you need to be in the wine trade. Mm. Um, and that to me was just really intriguing. Um, and, and then obviously with, with my dad and his reputation at the business, I would have been just, just a, I would be an imbecile to not not get involved in the wine trade. Yeah. And I'm very glad that I did. Um, I absolutely love it. Yeah, he'd laid the foundations, right? Yeah, through, through and through. So you've been traveling though, haven't you? So you, is it just Bordeaux and Napa that you went to? Have you been to other regions? Uh, so no, so I focused, after Varsity, I, I did three years of, of traveling and, and winemaking. Mm-hmm. Um, locally, I worked at Bouchard Finlayson to get some Pinot Noir okay. under my belt. Oh, lovely fresh wine. Um, Pinot, Pinot Noir and yep. Chardonnays. Yep. Um, love their Chard. Mm. Yeah, I love beautiful, beautiful wines. Um, and, then, and then from there, my international travels, I focused on the great Cabernet regions of the world. Yes. And You've, you've, so obviously Australia and New Zealand were, were on my um, kind of radar, but their season clashes with the South African season. And uh, I wanted yeah, yeah. to learn to know the South African industry, South African conditions. So I worked at Thelema, Hartenberg, Glen Carlo as well. Mm. Um, so it was just good training under those winemakers um, yep. in local South African conditions as well. And just getting a little bit of more understanding of Stellenbosch in our region. Um, and then traveling internationally, I wanted to see uh, Napa and and Bordeaux. So yeah. I did. I did my first stint in Napa was with uh, Stag's Leap Winery. Oh, well, that's um, not that is not bad. <laughs> yeah, so that that was great. So they they obviously a bigger producer. They run through quite a few tons. Um, so that was a nice introduction into Napa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then second vintage, I actually didn't want to go back to Napa after my first experience. Um, oh. I was probably still a little bit green and inexperienced and didn't meet the right people. Um, great team that I worked for. So it, it wasn't around that. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, oh, I want to I want to learn something else. And then I ended up trying to get into get into Bordeaux and those doors closed. I tried to get into Burgundy and those doors closed and uh, trying to get into Sociando Malay and I needed a, a visa and I didn't have a UK oh, passport, etc, etc, etc. And I was sitting a month before harvest and I was like, shit, I don't have a job. Harvest is coming along. And I get a random phone call from a lady who I did a tasting for the previous week. 
And she says her niece has got a boyfriend who's working at the small little winery in in, in Napa. Okay. And I think I think it's called Screaming Eagle. She said. Oh my god! Oh, a ti- a tiny little. <laughs> yeah, and she says, "Do you want to go work there for the harvest? They need oh, somebody." Oh my gosh! And I end up being like, put the phone down, and I looked at my dad, and I just smiled. This is insane. And I'm like, I'm like. Can I do this? Because you can't get a visa either. And it, I ended up doing like a short course, three-day business course at Stellenbosch. That uh-huh. classified me as a student, according to the U.S. government, for a year as a full-time student. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I got my visa, got back in. I was on the plane within three weeks, and I walked into, into Screaming Eagle. And the assistant winemaker had broken up with his girlfriend, and he had been fired the day that I arrived. <laughs> So my entire link into the winery had disappeared. And yeah, I was standing in front of Andy Erickson and I was like, hey, what's up? Let's make some wines. And um, wow. it was an amazing experience. I worked with a, with a guy from, um, from Spain yes. um, who had his doctorate in, in wines. And Adam Mason, actually ex-Clain Constantia, now working for Moldebosch, he joined us for three weeks as well. Um, and I just met an amazing team of people um, working there as well we had a great team of interns andy is probably the highlight of the whole trip working under andy erickson mm-hmm. um, he's an absolutely brilliant winemaker and his ability to 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 delegate responsibility was amazing he just kind of gave us free reins he just checked that we didn't mess anything up but we yeah. were able to work with this beautiful fruit you just take it you put it into tanks you let it ferment you don't mess around with it it comes out big and powerful that is what napa is yeah but um it was really unmanipulated wines that we were making Um, and then from there I met an amazing girl girl called Aud Perch Mm -hmm. and she connected me to Chateau Angelus and I walked out of out of uh, Screaming Eagle and the following harvest I walked into a job at Angelus Um, so it was just this (laughs) this flow of things that just kind of you call it luck fate I don't know um, but it's, it's, it was just these two amazing properties that I worked at. And then at um, Chateau Angelus, I worked with Chris Arlite as well. Mm-hmm. He was there in my vintage and we worked with a guy, Duncan Schuler from, from New Zealand. So just these really, really nice people that I ended up working with, um, winemakers who are still friends with today. Um, and yeah, it was just great experiences, great learning schools of just seeing and tasting tannin and, and just evolution of fruit through harvest. Um, and obviously great wines um, yeah. once they go to bottle. I just, I mean, it's amazing. You're like, oh no, I wanted to go and work at uh, Chateau Sociando Malais. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> Angelus. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you don't get better than that. So that's that's stunning. So obviously Angelus is more Merlot based, but of course they, yeah. they have some Cabernet Sauvignon as well. And I certainly wanted to kind of focus this conversation on Cabernet Sauvignon because that's what you're doing in Stellenbosch that's obviously the great variety of Napa and certainly Screaming Eagle I'd love you to kind of talk about how I assume you were spending time across Bordeaux whilst you were more um, in Saint-Emilion but yeah you know how how does Bordeaux compare to Napa how does Napa compare to Stellenbosch like that's such an open question but just just your thoughts on these three winemaking regions I, th- I think one of the biggest things that I had walking, having kind of walked away from working at, at these different spaces is people, if you meet a Frenchman, you know he's French. If you mm-hmm. meet a German, you know he's German. If you meet an Englishman, you know he's Englishman. There's just a couple of things about people from an area that kind of make them 
you kind of want to put them into a little box. Now, obviously, you can't put everybody into boxes. That's, mm. That will be a terrible thing to do. But there's, there's, there's a reason why they're standing jokes about certain people from certain <laughs> countries. And funnily enough, you find that in, in the wines and the way they go about wine, they may go about drinking wine, the foods that they do with it, they, it all plays a role. Like if you go to mm-hmm. Napa, it's big, it's bold, it's flavorsome, it's intense. And I found that in the people, you find that in the cuisine, you find that in the entire kind of structure of the American personality. And I say that being married to an American. Um, You're allowed to. I love to. them to bits. Um, <laughs> I'm allowed to, but they, they, they're big, bold um, characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's part of what they are, where the French can be a little bit more austere and a little bit more uptight. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get to know them around a table at five hours later and seven <laughs> bottles of wine, they're the friendliest, happiest bunch that you can get. Mm. But they, they obviously, they arrive there in their suits and everything is business, especially out of mm-hmm. Bordeaux. And and I find you you can draw that cinnamon almost through 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 the wines and yeah. the way they go about wine and they talk about wine and they produce wine and then it just also happens so that I mean climatically Napa is significantly warmer than than Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Um, Bordeaux's got this oceanic influence between between the um, the Garonne and and the ocean moving moving across. It's flat. Um, there's hardly a bump in the area where Napa, you've got this valley influence. Um, you've obviously got the fog moving up the valley, but it was just for me amazing how we had a fig tree outside the winery at Screaming Eagle and these figs naturally dried on the tree. So we were eating dried figs for the whole harvest. It's one of the things that stuck in my mind (laughs) where if you're in Stellenbosch, figs rot off the tree. They don't dry out. So either the birds will eat them or they'll just fall off the tree rotten Mm. where in Napa, they completely dried out which just shows you where the humidity is sitting through yes. harvest so in Stellenbosch you've got this oceanic influence on the sea breeze coming through every afternoon so from like one two o'clock you get this humid air that pushes into the region which is more similar to Bordeaux as well okay, yeah. where in Napa you've got this lot more dryness once the fog bank lifts it's a much drier environment and it's this showcases in the wines it showcases Napa's obviously got a little bit more higher latitude than, than, than what we all have in Stellenbosch. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a little bit closer to where Bordeaux is sitting, so they've got a little bit lower UV degree, degree but maybe a bit more temperature. We've got a little bit more intense UV, so we, we find spots that, that kind of hide a little bit from that intensity of the sun, um, but where you get that cooling influence coming through again. And I think the biggest thing that you find up between these wines is how the tannin interacts with a fruit um, and that showcases in the wine, in the length, the structure, mm. the mid palates, all of that kind of plays around with the regions. And it's, it's for me just, it's amazing. You can't, you can't say this one is better than that because they are so vastly different. Yeah. Each one has got its unique characters. And you've got to just sit down, taste and spend a night with each bottle and spend years with a bottle and see how it ages to really get a feel for, for what that region does. And best of all, travel there, eat there, taste there. And then you'll get a know of why do wines taste the way they do. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that advice. I think, yeah, I can probably travel to wine (laughs) regions and drink lots of wine. That seems like something I'll do because I'm going to take this seriously. I'm taking (laughs) this wine education thing seriously. Yeah, there's, there's just one other thing for me. The great Cabernet regions of the world 
all have great surfing breaks very nearby as well. Oh. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's another major thing for me. I mean, uh-huh. obviously with Napa, you've got that whole Californian coastline. Bordeaux mm-hmm. has got Lucknow, Stellenbosch, obviously the whole of Cape Town, Margaret River. I mean, it's, it's surfing tills for itself. So I think if you're a Cabernet growing area and you don't have good surf, then you've got to ask some serious questions about yourself. <laughs> Good to know. So we're talking Cabernet Sauvignon. Quite clearly, the fact that you are working with Cabernet Sauvignon so closely and you've got to know the great variety across different countries, what is Cabernet Sauvignon to you? Like if somebody said, oh, I love red wine, what's Cab Sav? You know, what would you say to them? What is Cabernet Sauvignon? First thing is ageability. And I know this is not fashionable and it's not trendy, but for me, the big thing is, like there's this at the moment there's this big drive towards lighter wines in Mm. south africa everybody's mad about sinsos and freshness and so forth but once you sit down with a 15 20 year old cabernet that's been well aged you really truly understand what these wines are about Mm. that's when that delicacy and the elegance comes in and the word claret comes to mind and Mm. that for me is what cabernet is all about and tasting young cab you've got to understand these wines are about constructing a wine well, today we need to construct a wine that is um, approachable younger, but yeah. if it doesn't have that ageability to it, then that's really the signature on Cabernet, and that's in its genetics. Which it and for me as a winemaker, that's really my responsibility is to to get a wine on the market that that is that showcases its vineyard and showcases this genetic potential of the grape to be able to age and. Mm-hmm. In the end of the day, if you don't respect your fruit, if you over-ripen it, if you manipulate it, if you add too much acid or just too many other stuff, you end up, I think you end up reducing the ageability of this wine. Okay. And you end up not having the, that, the, the legs for it to just keep going. And I think there, therein lies the beauty of, of Cab for me. Mm, I love that. And what have you learned about this variety over the years? Obviously, you've just said don't over manipulate it and make sure that you're producing a Cabernet Sauvignon that can age. But has there been things like working with Screaming Eagle? There must have been a lesson or two to be had there. The the big thing with Screaming um, was that don't mess around with good fruit. Mm. And I think that that rings true in any with with any cultivar that you're working with um is is that screaming had absolutely perfect viticulture i mean every single cane was tied with a freezer bag tied to the wire so that the light penetration through the canopy was absolutely spot on and i think Mm. this is one of the major kind of things working with cabernet is in the vineyard the more precise and the more homogenous you can be with the canopy and the way you let light come in onto that, onto the bunches, onto the leaves, the better you can work and actually showcase what that vineyard does. Cabernet mm. doesn't like variation in it. Um, where and, and I think that's one of the great things that I enjoy working with Cabernet as well, is if you get those things right, you get your viticulture right, um, and most importantly, if you get your site right, the balance is there in the vine. You don't need to go and do a lot of suckering and breaking of leaves and a whole lot of other manipulation. The vine grows into its own balance and it gets the light going through. The canopies are in balance and you can just get this perfect ripeness that you're looking for. And you can then as a winemaker come in and say, okay, I want to pick a bit earlier. I want to pick a bit later, um, depending on the block, depending on the site. 
but you can you can really express the site once that you know that viticulture quality is there that you need to so you really need to place attention to detail in the vineyards um, how you're working with your fruit um, the growth not too much vigor cabernet hates vigor mm. um, and then from there you can you can then you as a winemaker basically don't mess it up um, which <laughs> which the the bottom line for me on Cabernet winemaking is you've got to know what you're doing with tannin and with extract and how hard you're working that fruit because if you do it too light you're not going to have that ageability and that tannin which is so Mm -hmm. beautiful in cabs if you do it too heavy it's dried out it will never come into balance and it's just not it's just a very very unpleasant wine so being able to just really look after the tannins through harvest and the way that you extract them that's really where where the skill set comes into me with with good cabernet winemaking well now you talk about cabernet winemaking i have pre-poured a glass of your la riche reserve 2018 so i'm gonna have a little taste of it i know you don't have uh you don't have a glass but um i hear that you know quite well your own wine um, yeah so- <laughs> i kind of drank a bottle last night so it's uh, it's quite quite fresh at the back of my mind in preparation for this podcast right yeah that that and in, also in celebration of our platter five star that we got so we were one of one of the the cabs that that got in oh congratulations wait hang on let me put the glass down there we go yay so very happy to be celebrating with you now with this glass so, I'm going to have a little taste, but can you then talk to me about your winemaking with this wine? Like you said about extraction, I guess, maceration, being careful with the tannin. So with this specific wine, the reserve wine, which is the next level up because there is the, the La Riche Cabernet Sauvignon, which people can also get, you know, what are you doing mm. with this wine? So so for us, it's we, we make two different styles of Stellenbosch Cab. Um, our, our Cabernet is our, what we can, let's call it for, for the sake of the, the standard cab. Um, we, we try and extract a little bit less tannin. Okay. Um, so you get us wine that's a little bit softer and we don't give it as much time on the skins. So we'll mm. press off it about between seven to 10 days, which, which means you get a little bit more primary fruit. Um, and so it's a wine that you can access a little bit earlier. It's going to go a little bit faster through its aging curve as well. Where with the reserve, this is really about expressing the very best of Stellenbosch that we can. Yeah. Um, so it's a blend of vineyards. And, but what we do with this fruit is we'll go through extended maceration. So depending on a vineyard, we'll go anything from 14 to 24 days that the, the fruit will spend mm-hmm. on, its, on the skins. So go through your ferment and then we close it up and then just monitor how how this fruit develops in tank and that timing of when you press is extremely important but what that time on skin does is it it change it you obviously start to extract a little bit more seed tannin which is something that I've, i saw them focus on a lot at at Angelus was ripeness of seeds and and because it, it it gives you a little bit more of a kind of a powdery chewy kind of tannin structure yeah um and then uh, the longer time it spends on those seeds, obviously the more of that you get out, there's more alcohol, so forth. Um, but you also get more complexity, you get a little bit more deeper sense of, of fruit flavors coming through, um, but you lose some of that primary fruit. So you lose a little bit of that cassis and, mm-hmm. and just like fresh black currants and fresh blackberries and so forth coming through. So it's really just about just, just changing the focus of what I want in the wine and what I want the fruit to express in the end of the day. Mm. Um, so it's just two, it's two interpretations of Cabernet. So with the reserve, this is really for us about ageability. It's got the lovely big tannins, um, a long finish. 
2018 specifically, we find a little bit drier tannic finish, mm. um, which is playing a role. This is the last of the four years of the drought. So very small berries, very concentrated fruit, um, which is sitting kind of backed by that more black fruited, um, black fruited, a little bit of red, but more black fruited kind of flavor profile, but still having a good acidity, which yeah. in, in South African context is absolutely key. If you go, if your acidities aren't there, especially natural acidity, you end up getting a wine that's just, it just falls away on the palate. It gets sweet as well. And when it ages, it goes that sickly sweet, which you really don't want. So mm. retaining that freshness is absolutely key, which I think we, with 2018, I'm really running it on that on that nervous edge. But I think the wine is is there and I'm very happy with the results on it. Well, it's interesting you say that because for me, you, it is, it's full bodied, but it's not huge. It's got a real yeah. good concentration of fruits, but there's still some elegance there. And I think that the yes. tannins, although they are high tannins, they're more, I think probably what you mentioned, in a second they're, they're more chalky if anything they're not they're yes, not too yes. grippy um and i what i like about it actually as a bit what you said i think you've stepped away from cassis so it's not really black currant. if anything there's a bit of blackberry and black cherry but there's almost that nice mm. earthiness not not overtaking the fruits but like even even like maybe a hint of tomato leaf or something like yes. slightly herbaceous that just kind of adds a little bit of complexity but a nice amount, you didn't mention oak aging, and I'm getting that nice kind of oak spice and leather in there as well. Just, it's it's beautifully rounded. So what's your oak aging with this? Yeah, so we, we do about 24 months standard on all all our yeah. wines of, of aging in two to five French oak barriques. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. We, we use good quality French oak that works best with cabs. Um, unfortunately, it's also the most expensive oak that you get, but those go handy hand. Yeah, well, tastes good. <laughs> and... And then Cabernet, Cabernet needs oak, um, which the, the, the reason behind that is that Cabernet needs oxygen. Mm. And a new barrel gives you the most amount of oxygen slowly coming into the wine. Because it's got so much tannin, you need to knit that tannin in. And yeah. so it's really about getting a balance of using the oak and that oxygen ingress that you're getting without drowning the wine in oaky flavors because yep. you don't want to be eat, drinking a tree it's just like that's not what wine <laughs> is about um the barrel is there to support the fruit it's not yep. there to showcase and overpower what what you're working with so yep. it's it's really just finding that balance so our reserve will be anything from 60 to 100 percent oak depending yep. on the vintage and we really do we do our final oak we so we blend after one year, so we keep every every component separate for the first year, every vineyard that we work with. Okay. And then we, my sister, my dad and I will sit down um, for the blending process. And my sister's a Cape wine master. Um, uh -huh. Probably the best palate in, in the family as well. Um, and then my dad with his experience and I've got the young wine experience. And then we'll argue for days about which way we want to go. Love but that. luckily we always, we three people. So at least it's always two against one. And if none of us <laughs> agree, then we know we don't have the right wine. And if all of us agree, then you know we have the right wine. Okay. So we'll sit and blend after a year. Then those wines go back into barrel, usually around 70% mm. uh, new oak. And then after two years of aging, we'll then reassess that wine and decide, okay, do we want to move this oak up to up to 100% or are we actually rather going to take some of the new barrels out of the blend and bring that oak concentration down um, so it's it's really just making sure on those two steps that we don't 
that we're respecting the fruit and that we're once again showcasing Stellenbosch in our mm. best interpretation of that season um, and, and in what we can do with Cabernet. I love it. It's super beautiful. There's this real warmth. I feel like I can taste like the warmth of the the earth warmth of soil you know like maybe after mm. it's rained and then it's heated up anyway but it's got beautiful fruit the length is delicious because as you the whole time you've been talking the last bit you've been talking I've stopped drinking um and I can still taste it now with really concentrated black cherry fruit that's maintained along with this lovely kind of licorice spice so that kind of sweeter baking spice is delicious mm. um would i be right in saying la riche at a winery you are really focused on cabernet sauvignon that is your main focus right that's through and through everything we do yeah so we do we do three wines um the the two major focus wines are obviously our reserve and our cabernet yeah. both are 100 percent cabernet but we like to call them blends because we use the different areas of stellenbosch yeah. to to showcase and use as blending components so you mentioned earlier that little bit more of a herbaceous undertone that you're also mm. getting on the wine that's typically what we get out of Jonkershoek or on the simonsberg mountain okay um where if you're going onto the Helderberg, you get more of a Greek character coming through with a lot of black olive tapenade. Mm. Um, so really using the different areas of Stellenbosch to give us blending components to work with. Um, and then we do a third wine, which is actually, show, we call it the Stellenbosch Heritage Blend. Um, it's called our Richesse. Yes. And that's actually looking at the history of blending with Cabernet in in Stellenbosch. So firstly, going back to the old Cabernet Cinsos, that's actually what I grew up drinking, which was traditionally 75% Cab, 25% Cinso. Mm, so our richesse is 40% Cab, 20% Cinso. And then we use about 10% each of the border varieties going to ah. Merlot, Cab Franc and Petit Verdot. Okay. So it's kind of the more modern style of Stellenbosch, which is leaning towards the Bordeaux blend. Yes. And the more old school style, which is that Cabernet Cinso component. Um, and kind of just giving a tip to the hat, hat of how Stellenbosch has been working with Cabernet over the last hundred years. Lovely. Listen, everybody who's in the UK, you can easily get hold of all of these wines. Certainly, I know because I already wrote it down that the um, the Cabernet Sauvignon, the first wine, eighteen ninety nine in Waitrose, plus lots of independent online merchants. So that one's super easy to find. I've seen a lot of that online, and the delicious wine that I'm drinking now, you can get it from Drink Finder at thirty eight pound seventy five. And Christmas may be done, but it's still time to treat ourselves. So absolutely, grab a bottle of that. And of course, I'm not sure what the research is uh, selling for. Probably similar, probably just a little That's, bit. Yeah, that will be sitting at about, I think, between 14 to 16 pounds um, in that vicinity. Ah, so the, okay, the most, the most affordable. Everyone, get on to that. So that's the end of part one. Part two is out next week where we'll be tasting other Cabernet Sauvignons from Stellenbosch and Christo is going to talk me through the whole region explaining the nuances of Cabernet Sauvignon as you move around this one region. So prepare yourself to be a Stellenbosch Cab Sav expert. Now as always I shall leave you with a quote and this one is from Andre Cheleshchev, who most people would agree to have been the most influential winemaker of Napa Valley's history. And he most famously said, 
God made Cabernet Sauvignon, whereas the devil made Pinot Noir. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with a devilishly good Pinot Noir, if you ask me. So that is it for today's episode. I can only assume you are all now reaching for a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon. Do like the podcast, share the podcast with your wine-loving friends and subscribe if you haven't already. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do leave me a comment as it does make the podcast more discoverable. Thank you as always for listening. I hope you're as excited as I am for next week's episode. And until then, cheers to you. 